I'm WFAE's David Borax, and this is R&D in the QC. Tarek Bakari and Larkin Eggleston, one Republican and one Democrat who bonded as first-term Charlotte City Council members. Somehow, they both got re-elected, and now we're stuck listening to another season of this amateur hour bullshit. In the first 82 episodes, they talked to a governor, a senator, presidential candidates, and even a journalist or two. Their goal again this season, bringing Charlotte listeners behind the scenes of the city council in one of America's fastest-growing cities. I won't be listening, but for some reason, you are. It's episode 98 of R&D in the QC, and we'll discuss small business relief, rezonings, task forces, and reopen NC. Episode 98. Larkin, how are you, my friend? I'm well, sir. How are you? Well, I've been missing my sidekick. I mean, is that something? Is that... You thing? don't have a sidekick, so I don't right now. Unless you mean right. Chase, you are correct. I do not have a sidekick right now. We are or ever. Are, oh, that's debatable. What's going on? I wouldn't be the sidekick of someone who has a shock jock mic and wears a flat billed cap while doing uh, live streams. I I, wear, I like the hat. Don't get me wrong, but the flat bill, I feel like you're trying a little too hard. Listen, I have a whole bunch of hats that I'm prepared to wear and break out during this quarantine time. Also, I've got my uh, all... mic, the golden microphone, as we refer to it, in the excellence in podcasting network. Is, is that a reference to the uh, John Oliver jokes about Rush Limbaugh this past week? Or that's just Rush Limbaugh's mantra. I think he existed a little before John Oliver. Yeah, but no one cared about Rush Limbaugh until John Oliver started making fun of him. Uh, I think that might be debatable, but whatever. This is a get-together, touchy-feely, right and left side of the aisle combined podcast. This is not. This is not about. <laughs> what do you buy um, before we start? How, how's your life over there? You've been you've been you've been helping people out on the side of giving them something to focus in on, remembering all those bars and restaurants that we've lost. You know, there's a weird. Uh, parallel there which is like we may be you may be doing this again in five years think about how many bars yeah. and restaurants that we don't even realize we're about to lose uh, are, are going under every day right now yeah unfortunately there's uh, been some national predictions and i would imagine that north carolina or charlotte would potentially mirror those somewhat closely that, that we could lose like a third of our restaurants and uh so think about you know your 15 favorite places that you like to go eat in uh, Charlotte and think about five of those not being there for you in a couple of months. Um, and more importantly than just the selfishness of, of hating to lose the places that you enjoy patronizing, imagine all the, you know, the owners and the managers and the bartenders and the servers that you love that work there uh, that rely on that job to put food on their table uh, and that job not being there for them. So it is scary. And I hope that people are doing everything they can right now, um, whether it's ordering takeout, a lot of the uh, cocktail establishments, are doing these creative cocktail kits where they'll bring you or you can pick up everything but the booze um, and they'll have all of the herbs and the syrups and the bitters and the tinctures and the whatever else uh, with a recipe card in there. And um, so there's, there's people being creative and I love the creativity and the nimbleness of a lot of these businesses, but none of them are making anything close to what they're accustomed to making. Um, and it's, it's starting to hurt them. And we'll talk a little more about that. You mentioned um, Nikki Wolf, who's the head of Yelp in Charlotte. She and I have been doing, um, we just finished up the most missed bar 
tournament, kind of NCAA-style tournament with a 64-team bracket. Dixie's Tavern was named the most missed bar in Charlotte by the people. Uh, there's got to be a party whenever parties are allowed again. Awesome uh, spot that was, to, man. To I have so many Dixies. good memories. So many uh, good Dixie's memories. For the newbies, that's where the uh, Google Fiber office is now on 7th Street. You can still and go we, party there. And we're in the midst of, and people can find it on uh, my Twitter or Facebook or Nikki's, Nikki Wolf's Twitter or Facebook. Um, we are in round two of most missed restaurants. And my personal favorite coffee cup is still in the mix. Uh, they had a, a tight contest in round one, but they made it through. So I hope people will go vote for that. They've got until, uh, I think, 6 p.m. tomorrow, which is Thursday, 6 p.m. Thursday, to vote in the second round of Charlotte's Most Missed Restaurants. But it's been a great way for us to talk about not only the places that are gone, but the places that are still here. And if you miss a certain spot like Branch House, the great steakhouse out on Wilkinson Boulevard, it's given us an opportunity to talk about Beef and Bottle on South Boulevard, which I assume you've been to. Oh my God, that's it's literally one of the best places in Charlotte. Town. Uh, absolutely, hands down. In fact, I can't believe that we haven't both been there at the same time. Let's do, how about, let's make a deal right quick. When all this is done. We celebrate a Beef and Bottle. Me and you, we head over to Beef and Bottle. Just a real nice, we sit in the inside part, not that outside no, patio. Not, not the greenhouse. Yeah, not the greenhouse. We sit on the inside. Oh yeah. Booth style, nice candlelight, couple steaks, just, just. Big bottle of red wine. One one liter and his sidekick. Just really reminiscent about how tough this time was. I keep telling you, man, don't sell yourself short. You're not my sidekick. Before we move on. You're my partner in crime. Which, by the way, you've spent far too much time on it anyway. Before we move on, I just have one question. How are you not going to put La Bibliotheque inside the 64? They just didn't. I mean, we, we started with 200 restaurants that people had mentioned via Twitter or Facebook. So we had to take a lot of stuff off. A restaurant that I was the general manager of didn't even make it on there. So uh, I could see why. I don't know when what you it start, was, I would assume. Ratcliffe on the Green, phenomenal oh, restaurant. Yeah. Um, when you start with 200, you have to cut ones that you wish you could keep. Uh, anyhow, people can check those live streams out and that bracket out. Yeah, this is a interested. podcast. This is not your joking around stuff. So what? let's get into business now. What do people need to know? So it's been somewhere along the lines of, of 10 or 11 days since we lasted an episode. We, were, we had our two representatives from the United States House, um, Congressman Alma Adams, Congressman Dan Bishop, who we'll talk a little bit about later on our last topic. Uh, we had them on to talk about what's coming down from Washington. Um, but since then, we've been able to deploy some, some programs and make some decisions here at a local level. Um, we anticipate that this, the state is going to be going back into session next week. Um, we anticipate we'll be seeing something coming from Raleigh in terms of um, relief for people, relief for businesses. We'll, um, we'll certainly keep our eyes on that and discuss that as that, uh, as that kind of finalizes and, uh, and we know what is available for folks. But um, we had a meeting last week. We got two meetings to talk about. So last week, the big news out of that one um, it was a lot of, of logistic type things. We're really mainly discussing coronavirus related stuff. The main thing was a small business program. Um, and, and as you are on the small business task force, one of three task forces the mayor created uh, specifically around these issues. Uh, we'll talk about the other two a bit later, but I'll let you touch on the small business program that the city has deployed. Yeah, it was part of that broader package. So I think we, we voted on a, on, 
on it multiple ways, but at the end of the day, it was a broader, I think five or it's been two weeks and that feels like two years at this point, but it was a going from memory. It was a broader five, six or so million dollar package of which the majority of it came from the cares act. Uh, and this is what everyone's voting on. There's also a lot more money coming from the cares act, but we're also getting guidance on, on how the next um, cycle of that needs to be spent, needs to be invested. So uh, we won't talk much about that now because we're still trying to figure this out on the fly. But the last round, it went to multiple programs, um, including um, rental assistance and other things like that. Um, but then there was a separate thing that we did. And the backdrop of it is, you may remember the county stepped out and they launched their own small business grant program. But because this is CDBG dollars, and I know we're getting a little nerdy and in the weeds right now, um, that comes from the federal government, community development block grants, it has very specific rules and, and, and uh, requirements around it. One of which is it can only be deployed into these specific opportunity zone corridors. And another one of which is we found out through this process, it can't be double dipped. So when Mecklenburg County rolled out, you know, some might say a significant dollar size program, other might say in the grand scheme of things, it's not nearly enough. They, could, they rolled it out everywhere except Charlotte because they couldn't double dip with CDBG dollars potentially where we already rolled them out. So it was on us to fill a gap potentially, and that's the, the, the storyline there, of enabling, uh, and what we did is put a million dollars up for debate and discussion and vote to do a gr essentially a grant program. I have completely put aside all my kind of challenges around like, is that under normal times something my principles and from a conservative nature would say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be against that because that's just not within my, my wheelhouse or realm of possibility. And I've now moved myself to a point of, I'm never going to compromise my principles, but I'm looking at everything in a, at a di in a different way, in a different light. And to say, is this something we need right now? Because crazy times call for, you know, unprecedented measures. So I did it. I gave it a hard look. And I just really, for a couple reasons, didn't think it made a lot of sense. But primarily, one, you know, we don't have the balance sheet to do an effective program, nor the expertise to roll it out. I made the analogy that it felt like we were taking a small handful of BBs and throwing them into the ocean. And it was going to feel like to a lot of these businesses that actually got it, that they won the lottery just to be considered and receive a very small amount of money. That's, which leads me to my second point, which is, for the small, particularly the micro businesses, five employees or less who could qualify for this. Um, one, if you're lucky enough to win the lottery and get it, you're only getting up to 10 grand pretty much, which even for a five, three, four employee company, that's going to float you for one week. And we have no process plan or thought in, in mind of how we're awarding these other than kicking a can down the curve for someone who is potentially going to die and close their doors today, what's the difference between that and a week from now if there's no broader help coming in a week? So, Well, I hopefully the answer is, that. hopefully the answer is there is broader help coming and it, and it bears repeating something you said there towards the beginning, which is there will be dollars from Washington and, and potentially dollars from Raleigh that come to Charlotte and we will be the clearinghouse for those dollars. We'll be the ones who deploy those dollars through programs that maybe we help to shape but definitely help execute. Uh, but a lot of those will have been earmarked for specific types of businesses, specific people. There'll be certain qualifications. So it's important that folks understand that as some of these things um, 
as, as you start to hear about some of the dollars that are coming from other places, um, oftentimes those aren't dollars that come free and clear for the city to do anything and everything they want with. We'll have to use some of the parameters that they set forward when they send those dollars. So, um, and you know, l listen, uh, uh, Eric Cable, a frequent commenter on on, on everything. <laughs> I I I I don't fall on one side or another on the vast majority of people. Like I see things they say that I agree with. I see things that I think are dumb or whatever. He's here's the point he's just making on our live stream right now, which is how are the city and county going to pay their bills with all the last lost sales tax and hospitality tax? That is the most reasonable question I've seen Eric ask in the last three weeks. And so let me answer it. We, we are in the process of, of going through this year's budget. And obviously um, we're going to have to take a, a severe turn from where, from the direction we thought we were headed. Um, and the manager has already started that. There's been a hiring freeze. Uh, we're going to be eliminating some vacant jobs. We've made a pledge. We're not going to eliminate any of our current headcount, but we've uh, hiring freeze, eliminated some vacant jobs. Uh, there's going to be no new programs in the budget this year. We were expecting some natural growth in terms of revenue. Obviously, that's not going to be there. We're going to be short. But um, again, we think that there's potentially going to be dollars coming from uh, the federal or state government that could help with some of the expenses that we're incurring in terms of response to the coronavirus. Um, there's a lot of adjustments that the manager is going to have to make, but he's already on that. And our, our budget team is already trying to game out different scenarios and how short they could leave us in terms of the revenue side of our budget. But we, we have to have a balanced budget, which is one, uh, it's a gift and a curse, um, but it means that come hell or high water, we can't spend money that doesn't come in the door. Um, so the manager will have to figure that out with, with us helping. And, um, and so it will be a balanced budget. There is no other option. Yeah, but all right. So I think you answered that well, and I agree in the, sh but I would just put an asterisk and say, everything there is, is pretty much short, if not midterm at best. Like I, I've been looking very closely at the long-term ramifications of what we could be dealing with. And again, it's hard to think outside of the day-to-day -day kind of chaos that we're in the middle of right now. But I am really, really scared for what terrible impacts that we're gonna have to face down the road longer term are gonna be. I think we, we got a very dire, uh, not this Monday, but the one before, um, presentation from the manager at my and many others request of we need to see scenario based forecasting of what you guys could be seeing. And it looked bad. And I think it was probably rosy. I think they probably put a rosy light on it. I think we're going to have to deal in the long term with impacts that um, no one in this city, including in the last several crises, including 2007, 2008, where we essentially were the second largest banking hub and one of the most impacted there have ever faced or experienced. And it's going to be way, way different when we are firing city staff, not just for the, those lives impact, but for the services that then we won't be able to provide to the small businesses and the residents who are also struggling in their own rights. I mean, the level of complexity in the spaghetti bowl that we're going to be dealing with of, of just downstream unintended impacts really frightens me. The, uh, to reiterate, in case someone jumped in there mid-comment, the city is not currently laying off any employees. Uh, there's a hiring freeze. You're saying there could come a point where if the impacts, economic impacts are dire enough, 
it could get to that point. We are not at that point, and we have, have said we will not be doing that. Are you certainly. really? Are you? I mean, you're doing your normal Larkin stuff of like. Well, yeah, because because, because if someone gets on here and, and hears you saying we're talking about cutting staff and doesn't hear the pretext, then they're going to say, wait a minute, I thought they weren't cutting staff. I hear you. But on the other hand, I'd say, if you're jumping into conversations midstream and then taking takeaways away, then you're part of the problem. Right? I mean, people are operating with partial information all over Facebook all day, every day. So let's, let's make sure we give a full rounded picture. All right. So, Um, but the, but the upshot on a lot of this, and it's, it's completely unsatisfying to, any one of our constituents, anyone in the city of Charlotte, we understand that it is. But the upshot is on a lot of this stuff, we just don't know yet. And so we have to, we have to think of not only what the best case scenario is, but what the worst case scenario is. And we have to game plan for that and everything in between. And we just don't have all those answers yet. And um, so anyhow, one of the things that I think, and, and this is a maybe natural transition to talk about um, briefly the meeting you had yesterday, I've got two tomorrow. The mayor, uh, we obviously have our normal committees um, that we've always had. Those are kind of on hiatus right now and have been temporarily replaced with three task force task forces that are specifically around issues related to uh, the coronavirus. You are on the small business task force. It met for the first time yesterday. I'm on the airport and tourism task force, which meets tomorrow morning. I'm also on the housing task force, which meets tomorrow morning. Uh, those are being headed by Smudgy and Julie on the small business, Ed Driggs on the airport tourism, Malcolm Graham on the housing, respectively. Um, and Coordinated. Of us, we've got all three covered. Coordinated. Obviously, we haven't met on my two yet, uh, but we'll talk about those on the next episode. But tell me, or, you know, tell us real quick what, what all happened yesterday. Obviously, so, these are all happening remotely. Yeah, obviously. But now, here's the other thing, and I'm just going to toss this out there. No offense, whatever. But like... I just get a bit annoyed when I see specific colleagues of mine. And I mean, I'm not calling Julie out who it was yesterday or the mayor out who it's been for the last couple weeks. Sounds, I, sounds like you actually are. I am actually. Go ahead. Am. They're doing a lot of hard work. I'm not trying at all to, uh, to uh, you know, throw shade there, but why can't we all be remote? Like why, why does somebody feel like, Oh, they need to go in. I, I don't buy that. I don't like it. And I'll tell you, that's just so one. the one. The one yesterday, the mayor was in her office by herself, and Julie was with staff with a, a small group of staff down in the basement. Why are people going? Well, to the office? I had that conversation with her. She said it's only the second time she's set foot in that building since our meeting on March 16th, and she said she was a bit uncomfortable with it, but she also felt like, in terms of being the person who was moderating and running the meeting, that it was it was more logistically practical for her to be there to do that than to and try I to understand be that point. all I'm going to say is that leads me to my second annoyance of the last couple of weeks which is we suck so bad at remote digital technology and the ability to do this like this is not as hard as we're making it it is the most brutal experience to watch a city council live streamed uh, um, meeting. Well, because everybody's jumping in the deep end and very few people have the experience that you have on a lot of this technology. And even you're learning a lot of this stuff on the fly and, and we're all I'm getting better at it. Head, dude, we have a basement full of the most incredible media experts and stuff right now that literally cast our meetings every Monday night under circum- or normal circumstances. And I just feel like somehow 
that hasn't translated to, and this is important. I'm liking Eric more, more and more. This is unexpected turn of events, but he's, he's saying not everybody has a Mac daddy studio like you do, Tark. Some people are operating on old equipment. All right. I'm, Thank uncomfortable, you, Eric. I'm uncomfortable with you and Eric now. Agreeing on stuff right now. So maybe. But also, I mean, part of the awkwardness of a digital meeting, and this is, this has long been the case on conference calls is you, they're not visual. I mean, there's not really the same kind of visual and physical cues to pick up on when, when people are talking, there's all this, you know, raise your hand, put your hand down and people never put their hand down after they ask their questions. So then they come back around to them. I mean, a lot of it is just getting in habits of doing the things that help it run more smoothly. My I will buddy, say, no, no, no. My buddy we're talk about the rezoning meeting that just happened two nights ago here in a minute. And it went a lot better than the first two digital meetings we'd had. It did not. It was terrible. It, it was terrible, but it was less terrible than the others. It, we might as well have been on a bridge line in a conference call because they couldn't figure out how to pull our faces up. And it just summed up by Mike, Mike my buddy right here, who's saying, I'm actually hosting a Zoom meeting right now and still watching you all for some reason. Like, it, Your buddy, you, ask, ask Mike which of us he considers more his buddy. I'd say it's probably me, although, yeah, I could see why you yeah. think so. Mike, let us know. All right, so tell us, without all your complaining and whining, tell us what you actually did in the meeting yesterday. Because we're running long already. Oh, yeah, we are. You're right. Uh, okay, so the uh, meeting, we brought together a bunch, seven to be exact, city citizens, residents, leaders, thought leaders that we handpicked from the four council members that are on there, me, Smudgy, Julie, and Dimple. The four of us chose these seven people um, to represent different segments, different viewpoints of the community and small business in particular. And we brought them together and then we started with Wells Fargo chief economist, Mark Vittner, giving us a presentation of where he's seeing the data right now, both from a business, economic, and virus perspective. And then we went around the horn and folks and leaders, including um, Dave Matthews, CIO at Bank of America, Sarah Balcom, uh, the founder of Girl Tribe. Um, uh, what's your buddy's name? The LGBT. Uh, Chad, Chad Turner, the president of the LGBT, LGBT Chamber of Commerce. Chamber, um, Malcolm Coley, managing partner at EY. List goes on. A lot, lot of good people on there. And basically, we heard uh, Mark Vittner's um, analysis, and then we went through that group twice to let them respond, give feedback, critique, analysis, insight from their view, from their sectors. So it was really meant to be a listening session by us, the council, not a big interaction session. Um, and we're taking that data and that input and figuring out where to go next. I, I've sent that group an email where I'm trying to get to a more actionable point where I laid out here's five areas that I think the city could play a role in the longer term recovery uh, back to whatever the new normal is, as well as continued resumption of business activities. And we'll have similar meetings tomorrow with housing and the airport and tourism when bring people in from those sectors to Good luck. give You've got a big day of masterclass WebEx ahead of you. <laughs> well, I've, I've got those back to back and, uh, and then a meeting with, I've got, I've literally wall to wall tomorrow on conference calls and WebEx calls. So that's going to be a blast. Uh, um, and, uh, and I've got one that you're not invited to, but you'd really like to be on. I doubt that. I'm, I'm maxed out with meetings right now, buddy. Team Biden. We got our weekly call tomorrow for Team Biden. That dude is still around? 
still around. He's gonna be he's gonna be your president for the next four years. Of what? These United States. Dude. Um I forgot that dude's still around. That's funny. Uh, That's good. Yeah, you keep you keep sleeping, you keep sleeping on Uncle Joe and see what happens. Um all right. So we had a meeting this week. It was rezoning, and it was not I hope that this sound effect you're about to use is wah, wah. Oh. You have that one? Somewhere. <laughs> That's the rezoning sound effect. All right. Yeah, I'm going to use that more often now. Go ahead. Um, rezoning. So we didn't, there were not a whole lot of interesting ones, but there, there was one really interesting one. Um, it literally took up, and I, I texted you during the meeting, and I said this is what would happen. It literally took up as much time as every other petition combined. Uh, and it was the Ballantine Reimagined Plan, which if I can, uh, I don't know if you're going to see it very well, but this is uh, their little image of, of what it could look like. And so... What would you uh, guess my biggest shocker moment, takeaway, drama set, uh, uh, topic was of that unexpected moment? What would you say? Unexpected? I wasn't. Maybe you were expecting it. I wasn't. Uh... I don't know. I don't know what you weren't expecting. I, to I me, it was it was somewhat predictable. Elise Dashu. Oh yeah, yeah. Chairwoman of CMS Board of Education to come out. Yes. One to come out. Two to come out so vocally and powerfully against. Uh, well, in, she. Was, I mean, not necessarily against the project per se. Right. I mean, and, and frankly, the the people that are pushing back on this project are pushing back on pieces of it. I think there's general agreement that what they're proposing would be a vast improvement. I mean, we're talking about a large bunch of parcels that have all been kind of gathered together here, one of which is the golf course. Uh, redeveloping all that mixed use, tons of residential, tons of office and retail, and um, it, it looks at the future of connecting the blue line that would come by like Carolina Place Mall and to the Valentine site. It uh, connects a bunch of roads and improves the street grid down there. There's a lot, there's a huge open space parks, amphitheater, a lot of public use and public amenities. There's a lot to like about this project. And I think to a person, everyone would agree with that. There are a couple of things around the edges that people are concerned about. And your point is that, that at least Ashu, chair of the CMS school board, talked about that we are at a crisis point in terms of overcrowding with schools in certain areas and that area being one of them. And that we can't allow how common school overcrowding is in our community to make us numb to it. I totally agree. And I agree with the sentiments and all that. I, I just, I kind of fell out a little bit where I think Braxton was going, which was like, we've been saying this for the three years or so we've been around and like, we've reached out multiple times. Like this is, this is not the first time that this phenomenon of like, what do we even do with this? Every rezoning almost shows an overcapacity school and an impossible situation we're putting them in. And no one ever has actual comments or feedback for us. And so, it's not like there's some part of town where there's a, a hugely undersubscribed school um, that you go, well, why don't you guys just develop in Northwest Charlotte or just develop in Southwest Charlotte? Everywhere is oversubscribed, almost everywhere. And the ones that aren't are, are pushing right up against that line. So what do you do though with that? Like, I don't know. What we heard it's so large. It almost feels like it's a, it's not like a let's troubleshoot this over the next 30 days. It feels like it's an ultimatum of like you either buy into this and you can't do it 
for years until we figure it out if we do it all, or you're just going to disregard it. I mean, am I, am I, am I misinterpreting that? No, I mean, I think that the, the calculation that has to be made is does something of this scale generate enough of a shot in the arm in terms of tax revenue that you could justify it on the basis that it, it seeds money indirectly into the, the budget of the school system to allow them to build schools to relieve the pressure. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, and I don't know, admittedly, I don't know enough about the, um, the building schedule that CMS has anyway to know where they're going to build that in that relief over the next one, two, five years. That's the point though, right? That's the thing that we've been talking about with them, which is like somehow if we want to be proactive and not responsive on a case by case petition by petition basis of overcrowding at schools. And that's the reason why you shouldn't support this or not. We need something where we're overlaying. Here's where the school capital investment yeah. is going. And, and, and so it needs to, and we don't ever see that. It should say like there's a new West Charlotte high school being built. It should say while schools are currently over capacity you know, the high school is currently over capacity. There is a new West Charlotte high school being built in the year 20, whatever, um, that will, we anticipate will relieve that pressure and it will, you know, whatever we need to be, yeah, to your point, kind of fitting hand in glove, the school building schedule in with the, when are we, when is this project going to be completed and actually calls that burden on the school system? And when will the new schools that are scheduled be completed and relieve that pressure? And how do those two things sync up? Yeah, we don't see that right now. So I don't know. I mean, that is an ad, and that is not. Uh, how are you going to vote? <laughs> I mean, I love the project. Well, there's a couple of things, and so I think one, we are making a, we are making a land use decision, and I think that the school question fairly weighs into the should fairly weigh into people's thought process on the land use question. The other thing that came up with um, that came up was that folks want, there is a, a, a amount of, and I don't remember off the top of my head, but there's an amount of 80% AMI and 60% AMI affordable units in this development. Um, there are folks who want to see more. We cannot compel a petitioner to do a certain amount of affordable housing and make our land use decision, our rezoning decision contingent on that affordable housing. Yep. However, they are coming to us and looking for grants to help with some of the infrastructure improvements that are needed down there. And so some of those grants, those are the areas where we could say, you know, if you guys want support from the city on some of the infrastructure stuff, here's the things we'd like to get from you. Uh, that's an appropriate conversation. From a land use perspective, I think that if we can get comfortable with this school's question, I'm certainly favorable to the project as a land use decision. What was that? Did you hear that? Yes. Oh, I was looking at something else. Sorry. I didn't know you'd be able to hear that. My bad. I thought it sounded like a sound effect, but I didn't see you touch your sound effect pad. So <laughs> I was looking at something else. I apologize. Yeah. I was multitasking. Well, I'm just glad it wasn't something inappropriate. But whatever you said, I, I totally agree with and believe in. I just want to. Well, you good. I said we're going to triple taxes. Oh, yeah, yeah. To pay for all these schools. Um, so anyway, I, I am favorable to this project. I, I hope that we can work with the petitioner to get more affordability out of it. 
I hope that we can come to some sort of a comfortable resolution on the schools thing, but that is not just about this project. That's every project that we approve. And so we really do have to come up with a better holistic and intergovernmental strategy with the school system to say, how should we be evaluating these? How should you be evaluating these? And how can we team up to know where the growth patterns are and where that relief is going to be needed in the school system and make sure that that's scheduled in as you do school bonds. So I, yeah. I don't know enough about schools to even know where to start that conversation, yep. but there are people who do. We have a good relationship with Ernest Winston. We have a good relationship with multiple school board members. Uh, we had Margaret Marshall a couple weeks ago. It's not like we're not talking, but I don't think that our staffs are hand in hand enough on those issues and the Did long you range plan was coming to speak. Uh, before the meeting, but not not well in advance. All the signups, essentially. Yeah, not well in advance of the meeting. I was very surprised with that, but you know, uh, so forecast it for me. Do, who, and yes, guys- Becca, those questions have already been asked uh, on overcrowding of schools. That will definitely factor into um, the decision making process. The, the questions have been asked, and we're starting to get some answers now. How do you think this this plays out over the next month? How do you think the vote goes? I think depending on what kind of answers we get on the school stuff, um, I, I could see it being delayed a month potentially. I think, I mean, it's just a lot of stuff to chew on. What's going to happen in one month is my question. I mean, this is, these are, these are, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, here's what I, here's what I think could happen, right? I think that if it's a question of on the CMS side, reprioritizing or understanding where things are and making a stretch yet reasonable ask of the petitioner, because this is of a scale that is nearly like, we're talking about a rezoning and then things after that, they said to us, equivalent to the size of Uptown, larger than that of South Park. I mean, this is not a building or a corner or a block, right? Yeah, this, so, is, a, this is a community. It's, and it's exciting, it's big, but they could come back with a stretch yet reasonable, achievable ask for schools to say, hey, like we don't wanna let this be another case of macro overcrowding of schools in that area. We need these tax dollars to, I don't even know, like somebody smarter than us on the school side, to your point, needs to say it, but like, can you agree to that? And I, that should be achievable yeah. in 30 days if it's, if it's a reasonable ask. And Jennifer De La Hara has, has commented there that the, the information is out there. And, and absolutely, Jennifer, um, we're, not, we're not trying to say that the school system is not transparent with that information. We're saying that we've got to get our staffs, uh, and we've got to do it too, but, but frankly, the staffs have to be better coordinated in making sure that the information that you've got out there and the information that we've got out there are put head to head and put up next to each other so that we can analyze them in tandem because right now, you know, I think you guys know what you're doing and, and the information's out there. We know what we're doing and the information's out there, but we're not really strategizing together. Or if we are, it doesn't feel that way to us. And I, and I, I see her comment right here. I, I don't think that we need to go to the level of like you bringing us in on the capital planning strategy no. sessions any more than we need to bring you in to every rezoning meeting. But I think we've got to find a better touch point, which is like, if we hear from the chair of your, of your board that this is something that is off the uh, is out of reason and, and it's and it's too painful what is it beyond how does it map up with where that construction spend that capital spend is now and like what's the ask because i didn't walk away from there 
fully comprehending what the 30 day ask was. Was it just like, it's impossible, vote no? Or was yeah. it, we can come to some kind of change or tweak that then provides additional capital into that plan? And it probably needs to become more common that we are getting a higher level or a greater amount of feedback from CMS on some of these larger rezonings because that was unusual. I'm glad that she was there to make that point because it might not have been something that was top of mind. Um, you know, it's part of the information that we're given on any school rezoning, but, but I think she's right. I think to some degree we've become numb to the fact that, well, yeah, schools are overcrowded. Schools are overcrowded in every part of our community. So, you know, what are we, what are we going to do? Um, so I, I just think we have to have a, a higher level conversation and make sure that we've got systems in place where our staffs are working together so that we have a better analysis of, of the impact that we're having with our land use decisions and vice versa. I, I'm, not, I'm not deaf nor numb to the points that have been brought up. I think there are two valid ones, right? One of which is school infrastructure, school capacity, and this is a game-changing, exciting project, but it's going to have impacts there. And I think the second one, which I thought was going to be the main topic, but it was kind of a secondary topic, was the affordable housing element. And is there enough affordability in it? All I know is that if I was to read the tea leaves and where I think this is going, I think over the next 30 days or 25 days, I don't know how long it's been since we met, I think that this is tracking towards probably an approval, right? Because if we're presented with two options in one month where one is don't do it because we need to overhaul the way we connect to the school board, connect to all these things and do it. And it's not going to be solved for a while. I think then the, probably the people that are in that middle of the pack that could go either way say, ah, that's not acceptable to me. But if we go to that point and say, here are some incremental asks, incremental improvements to the affordability component, incremental improvements to how capital will ultimately flow and, and arm the school board with the ability then, and the county as well, the ability to invest in the schools to make sure capacity doesn't keep doing what it does all over town, which is just get blown through and put so many folks in a strained environment. Then I think that's something where we could either say, yeah, we're on board, we approve, or you know what, this is tracking in the right direction. Let's delay it for another 30 days and let that happen. I, that's how I'd handicap this whole thing. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, I mean, I think it could be the, it could be the impetus for some systemic changes in how we look at these things. I don't know that that, that will, is possible before the decision is going to be made. Um, Carolyn's asking, how do we commit grant dollars to a project not knowing what the projected outlook is for negative tax dollars moving forward with all that's going on? Um, this is not, when we're talking about like these tax increment grants, and we're going to get too far in the weeds because we want to talk about the reopen and see stuff, and then we want to wrap. But, um, uh, and that's wrap with a W, not R-A-P. Um, I, I shouldn't have said that because now you're, you're going to feel compelled to do something. No, you shouldn't. Um, this is not the city writing a check to the folks who are doing the Ballantyne Reimagine project. This would be... Uh, essentially the money would be coming back to them from the taxes that this project would generate. So it's not, um, it's not us opening our checkbook. So there's, they're only getting a break on, on the taxes they generate essentially. Is there a better 10 second way to explain that Tark? But it's not, it's not money that we're having to depend on taking in to give to them. That's it's right. Yeah. At this phase, that's right. But 
there is a, uh, there's an opportunity cost to it. There's a, you know, ROI for giving essentially the inverted rebate that this is. So while it's not in the way Carolyn kind of framed it there, there still are things to think through. And there's probably other, other elements of this in steps to come after a rezoning step, just given the magnitude of it. But essentially it's money back to them that would not have been generated, but for this development. Yes. So there's, there's not really an opportunity cost on the city's part. You said your favorite phrase. But for. for. I was uh, having all right. a while. You, uh, you got some buzz yesterday uh, from your conversation on the FinTech mosh pit with, uh, with our friend, Mr. Marino from Old Mecklenburg Brewing. Um, it was obviously a big news story yesterday too that um, the reopen and see protests down in Raleigh um, where very few people were wearing masks and they were socially not socially, certainly not socially distancing. And our guest from the last episode, Representative Dan Bishop, decided that he'd uh, politicize this a little bit more. And he rolled on down to Raleigh and uh, I guess used this as a, a campaign issue, which uh, also I'll point out, Cynthia Wallace, his Democratic opponent, is happy to do as well. She's already sent out a couple of emails uh, pointing out uh, the absurdities of his little field trip yesterday. But um, what I mean, you talked with John about the fact that when when the, we quote unquote reopen, it's not going to be like we we wait until we can get to a point and flip a switch and things are just back to the way they were. It's going to have to be whatever it is, however it is. It's going to have to be stair stepped. It's going to have to be gradual. Um, and that there will, there is some point and we don't, I don't know where it is, but there is some point where, um, there are going to be people and businesses that just start to fall off, fall away. It's already um, happened. It's already happened. Yeah. And, but I mean, even more in mass and, and there was never going to be a point in the next six months where it's going to be entirely safe for everyone to go out and pretend like nothing ever happened here. So we do have to figure out where this kind of dimmer switch approach, when it starts and how quickly you, you turn the lights back on. And you had that conversation yesterday. What did you, I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but what were John's thoughts as a, as a large business owner in this community? And not only a business owner of a brick and mortar place, but someone who distributes his product to a bunch of other places and relies on a lot of different pieces of the economy to make a living and, and support all the jobs he, he has there. And he's organically grown into what I think we would classify as a mid-sized business in Charlotte at this point, but he's got a small business mindset. I mean, he's, he's like, he came from uh, the, the, you know, <laughs> I'm sure to say the bottom and now he's here, but you know, you know, understand what I'm saying. Like he started yeah, small. like Drake. Yeah. He's like Drake. Exactly. He's got that mindset, but I, I read a post of his and it just, it resonated with me in a way where and listen, I called you, I called several people before I did that episode yesterday, because I didn't want to be viewed as politicizing something. I also didn't want to be viewed as um, capitalizing on something where inadvertently I'm further dividing both sides of this debate, because I want people to come towards the center here and see business logic, yet safety and saving lives hand in hand in that we can achieve both if we start innovating and thinking nimbly on that front and go back to business, right? So I took it very seriously in trying to figure out exactly how to frame all that. And then when I saw John Marino's post of like, hey, you know, I'm trying to just do my best here. And why is it as we're now X days into this that I can't in my acre and a half of old Mecklenburg Brewery that I'm responsible for 
get some guidance from you guys and put protocols in place, not even guidance, like mandates. He's like, tell me what to do. I'll do it to remain safe. Yeah, there's going to be recommendations in place for maybe the next year. But but in the, I'm saying recommendations that people just practice, you know, better hygiene, that they practice social distancing when they can. If you're older, you're more vulnerable, that you'd be really mindful. I mean, we're going to have to be thinking about some of those type of things for much longer than the time that we're, you know, to stay at home order. But to your point, there we can open with rules in place that are not recommendations, but are absolute uh, non-negotiables and say, these are the things you, if you want to start seating people on your patio again, if you want to start serving alcohol again, if you want to start using your dining room, you can only be at a quarter of your capacity. You can only have people, I mean, whatever it is, how far apart they have to be, how many people it can be, what your practices of serving have to be or a retail outlet, obviously. We talk a lot about the bars and restaurants, but there's so many businesses that are going to have to figure out, you know, what, how can we operate and operate safely when we're allowed to do so again? And it's not just going to be the way it was six months ago, all of a sudden. I think, I think it's, and even since that conversation, I've had several others and it's helping me evolve the way I describe what's in my head with this right now, which is to the point you just made, we're entering into a new normal. And that new normal isn't a week or a month. It's going to be for years to come, years to come. So, and that new normal is going to be a mix of the old way and the way we've been in the last month. It's not going to be the same. And, and we have to transition now, right away from batting down the hatches and let's survive this storm and go back to the way it was to in the new normal. And I believe that's as, as easy as possible as I can describe it is the difference is right now, we're at essential versus non-essential businesses, activities, workers, whatever topics, right? We need to go from that over to safe versus unsafe practices, environments, you know, uh, whatever that is that it falls into. And I think that will then prepare us for the new normal where someone like a John Marino sitting there and he's saying, all right, tell me the guidance for restaurants, bars, and breweries and cideries where what are the expectations of me when people arrive? How do they arrive safely and get to where their end place is they're going in my establishment? What does it need to be like then? Do they need a mask? Can they drink with the mask on or no? How do they pay and not hand cash over and sign a receipt? How do they then leave safely and get back in it? So it's not, it doesn't. No, it just occurred to me. There's an opportunity for you here with the FinTech hub. I think we're all over it, bro. Yeah. I mean, from a payments perspective uh, and maybe it's passport, maybe it's, you know, we've got so many payment um, companies in the Avid exchange there, there's got to be, and and I know it already exists, but there's got to be a way for even a mom and pop restaurant to be able to quickly and easily adopt uh, touchless payments. Um, there, are, there are so many ways to do that. It, this is like old news in the fintech world. However, what's old news as a capability in the fintech world doesn't mean it's at mass adoption. Right. You've got to have mass especially adoption. for your small places that, yes. um, that, that maybe, you know, have one of the old just little credit card swipers that they have beside the old school cash register. I mean, but that, that's a big thing. I got, I got pickup food or takeout food today. Um, for lunch and it was I was in my car they came to my car which was good and they accidentally brought me the wrong receipt I didn't realize it's after I'd signed it so then they had to go in they had to use my card again they brought me out another receipt with a different pen I could tell because it was a different color so now I'm touching two different pens it's like thankfully I had hand sanitizer in the car and 
And I, but if there had been a way, if she had said, hey, if you go on the bar website and click here, you can pay and leave the tip on the website through this app, whatever. And I could have done that. That would have been so many less touch points between me and that person and whoever else was working inside in that restaurant. This, this wasn't the right way, but we went for my anniversary last week and I picked up curbside from Good Food on Montford, one of the restaurants that should have been in your uh, competition last week. Except but that they're not closed. I understand, dude. It's only for closed you know, restaurants. For the last week towards you? Oh, you're so slow. Your, your jokes have to be funny for anyone to understand them as jokes. We paid online because we anticipated that. Lady came out, dropped in the passenger seat, and she had it. And I was like, uh, and we kind of froze. And she was like, you want me to sign it for you? And I was like, yeah, sure. So she's, what's the tip? So she wrote the tip and signed it for me. Now, that protocol probably isn't good. So you couldn't tip online, but you could pay? We just gave the card and they manually entered the card into the thing. The whole point. Either way, there's room for improvement here. Way room for improvement. And the market is now in a different place for it. So So I think that could be a big piece of it because if you can have, uh, you know, there's already things. If you go to the Hornets game, you can order your next beer on your phone. You download the Hornets app. Oh, God. And you. It's light years beyond where we need it. It's just mass adoption. Adoption. And so I think, you know, if there's an opportunity to go to OMB, and order your next beer from your phone and you know and then they set it on a a a table or whatever and you walk over and pick it up um and then for you to pay on your phone i mean there's so many ways that you can make those sort of interactions and transactions safer um and i think some of the big businesses and and frankly the sad part is that a lot of the big corporations a lot of the big national chains will probably be able to adopt that much more easily and quickly uh, and the mom and pop restaurants that are the ones who are in such dire straits, it's going to be that much more of a burden for them to do it. So I think, I think there's an opportunity and, you know, I, I don't know a shred of, of, of this compared to what you and a lot of your folks with the FinTech Hub know, but there's got to be an opportunity to have like a crash course for independently owned merchants, be they bars, restaurants, uh, clothing stores, whatever. Yeah. And say, Here are the top five, you know, technologies that you can utilize to make your customers feel more comfortable in your place of business and lessen the chance that, um, that you have a, uh, a bad experience or, or that something goes wrong. We are all over that, my friend. So to close that out, I, I would just say this, right? Um, oh, I jacked the volume up. Sorry about that. Um, I would just say this. Uh, I, I, I understand what the people on the open, reopen NC kind of side are trying to do. I just, when I think about, I'm actually in fairness, what I might say is when I think about the outcome on one side of it that we're trying to achieve, I think it's going to further polarize the people we need to, um, to kind of step up and make a tough leadership decision right now if they see people gathering in person. Now, someone else argued to me earlier this week well, if they hadn't done that, it may have not put the pressure on the people that when they come towards the middle with that, that, uh, you know, that more palatable option that they'll go for it versus not having that pressure. I don't know what the right answer is. All I know is I'm going to play my role, which is use the small business logic and uh, we can balance safety with reopening and just really use a really logical view of like it's business as usual that we're about to enter in a new normal and we can't operate like we're weathering a storm. Well, I wouldn't use the phrase business as usual, but I do think when somebody like you can come in and say, 
okay, here are the places that you'd be most concerned about there being a spread of the virus. And here is ways we can use technology or new ideas to lessen those um, risk factors or, or risk points. Then I think it, you, people can start to say, okay, that makes sense. I can see how I could go to OMB, particularly in weather where I can sit outside in their huge outdoor space. I can see how I could do that safely. And so I think it's giving people the scenarios and giving people the understanding of what new ideas and what new technologies can be utilized to make that experience safer that will make them accept a phasing back in of a lot of these merchants uh, and their businesses. So, I, you know, just screaming and holding signs in Raleigh, I don't think it, it does. It just pushes people further out to their respective camps. I was there. I was 100% of that mindset until <laughs> that person I talked to. You might want to specify that you were not there in Raleigh. You were at the place where I'm talking about. <laughs> in case someone just joined midstream. Yes, I was not physically there. I was of that mindset. And when I saw it and I was kind of like, I know what they're fighting for. It's a noble cause. This is ill-informed. And then I'll t I, I just, I truly felt that. And then when I had this conversation with this person and said that, they were like, but don't you think that that applies the pressure that then allows someone like you in the middle, then to not, not in the middle of, of the aisle, but in the middle of, of the debate, bringing an alternative that makes business sense, that makes them more open to that. And I said, dang, I don't know. I don't know. I think reasonable pressure moves people. I, I don't think that irrational anger moves people. I think it just, it makes people dig their heels in more. I can promise you Mandy Cohen don't give a damn about the reopening C movement. Roy Cooper, those people all dislike him anyway. I mean, what difference does it make to him? I think that when, people, when reasonable people come to the table with intelligent solutions, which is what we're talking about right now, I think, I think that can make people go, okay, there is a, there is a middle path here. But, 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 and I agree, in a perfect world, that makes sense. But think about the world that we exist in. Do we pay more attention to a super loud packed chamber of people for a rezoning against it? If they're all people that, that aren't gonna vote for me anyway, and they're just, and they're saying things that I don't think are reasonable arguments, then no. Not if you, they, the body itself, the city council as a whole. There are a small few. How many are, stupid arguments have we heard that were and how many people by they haven't many people that just th their point had no bearing on the decision yet it made us approach it differently i mean there's a point there it so might have moved the needle on two or three council members the, the, to me though if if there's a room full of folks who have openly stated they don't like me no one at that rally yesterday voted for roy cooper in 2016 and that doesn't mean he doesn't still represent them but for them it's not it's not politically motivating to him someone coming and saying Governor, there is a way for us to still be safe in terms of public health and also, and also help some of these businesses get back on their feet and help our economy start to warm back up. You present him with that option, that's going to be appealing to him. But people just screaming, reopen our state and not having any sort of a plan. Um, and ironically, even though I don't think they appreciate the irony, saying it's my body, my choice, um, which might have come from a different movement that they don't agree with. Um, there's a whole lot of irony that I don't think was appreciated yesterday. Things like that, things like, you know, a lot of those folks I would say probably frequently use the phrase, if only they'd followed the law, then maybe that wouldn't have happened. Uh, so 
I guess all that I'm saying, uh, and there's an argument about constitutionality and all this stuff, but all I'm saying is that I was of that mindset where if I, I was, I looked at it even from my vantage point and said, that's dumb. And then I heard that argument and I said, I'm not positive that it doesn't, but I think it can be best summed up by our friend Sam Spencer and his hashtags, hashtag stop Larkin, hashtag reopen Charlotte, hashtag MAGA, hashtag team Tarek. And I know Sam Spencer believes- Speaking of sarcasm, that's not appreciated. All right, well, um, the stay-at-home order at the county was extended to align with the states. It is through, I believe, April 29th, is that right? And so that would be a week from today. That's next Wednesday. So some decision either from Gibby Harris at the county or from Mandy Cohen and the governor at the state level will have to be made in the next seven days. So we will eagerly await that. Uh, as we mentioned, I believe it's Tuesday, six days from now, that the North Carolina General Assembly, the State House and State Senate go back into session. We expect some news out of there. We might need to talk uh, so, to our guy, Jason Sane. We might need to talk to Tim Moore, some folks. Yeah. To see what's going so on a lot there. will be um, – a lot will be happening in the next seven days, and we will uh, we will be back to talk to you about it. We've also got a business meeting on Monday, so we will come back to you sometime midweek next week to give you updates on all that. Any final thoughts, Tarek? Everybody stay safe. Can I show you something really quick and plug it? Do you mind? Take a look at this. Remember, if you heard that I launched, I've been you know launching a lot of very important things lately. YTAC, have you heard of that? No. What? You haven't heard of YTAC? Well, My eSports to yeah. STEM program for CMS seniors? Oh, well, yes, but I didn't know that's what it was called. I would expect you to, you to be paying a little closer attention. Well, this anyway, show has always explained its acronyms. YTAC is the Youth Technology Apprenticeship Camp. I worked with Sounds awesome. ELC, Bank of America, CMS, the city of Charlotte to launch it. We're in the end of day three, and let me just show you an image. These kids are, most of them, not going to a four-year college or debating it, um, and they come from a variety of different schools. Check this out. They're playing Rocket League this week. Here's the lineup. You can see the schools, uh, Independence, West Mech, Olympic, uh, Garinger, Vance. Uh, it's a great group. And today they uh, – These are – I'm sorry, you said these are – Juniors, seniors? Seniors, graduating seniors. seniors, that their whole lives have been disrupted. All those rites of passage that they have uh, have been disrupted uh, in going to prom and in going to, uh, to, you know, all their physical graduations and stuff. But these 20, not only are they learning to code all afternoon in their instruction period, um, but um, from... 10.30 to noon every morning, they get into competition mode where the high schools play each other. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I might even be able to show you the lineup for tomorrow. No, I can't. Um, but they are playing each other in a tournament uh, that started a little today, tomorrow, and then goes into Friday, where one school will be crowned champion of this week's game, which is Rocket League. I think the odds-on favorite is Independence right now. They're crushing, they're crushing, they're crushing. But um, it, anything could happen. They're practicing. And then we go into League of Legends, Valorant, and Call of Duty. It's going to be amazing, man. They're going to be the ones who invent this technology that helps us figure out how we can, uh, we can have a, a, safer, a safer business world. Fact. Fact. All right. That's all. Very cool. Um, all right. So 
that is episode 98. We are da- getting dangerously close to episode 100, and it's clearly going to have to be remote. Um, oh, I had an idea the other day. We skip 100. We just go to 101, 102, 103, whenever. And then we come back and do 100 in person live when all of this is, I mean, that could be years from now. But I'm just saying, let's, let's have a sentimental pause there and not do 100 like that. Maybe for 100, we could do like a best of, kind of look back at some of our funniest moments. I hope that's coming through more clearly than it is in my headphones to the uh, listening audience. Anyway, we'll figure it out. But uh, everybody stay safe. Support your local restaurants. Do whatever you can do to help the businesses you care about in your community right now and, uh, and look out for each other. We love you guys. Share, like, rate, whatever else you can do with a podcast. And we'll talk to you next week. We're out. 